Welcome back to Simon and Whiten, a podcast at the Crossroads Media, Business, and Politics. I'm Christian Whiten, joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Everybody, how are you? All right, Mark. Um, just news out recently. Uh, you know, we've spoken before about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. You know, if you don't have an actual plan to increase trade or to basically uh, open the way for capitalism to work in free market economies in the Pacific in order to compete with China, well, then what do you do? You have a conference and you put out a bunch of statements and you talk about information sharing. Voila, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. This is Biden's Seinfeld trade agreement, this trade agreement about nothing. So it turns out India isn't even willing now to send their diplomats, of which they have a lot, to just fill seats and go along and sort of say happy things about this framework that everyone sort of knows is about nothing. Incidentally, Taiwan really wants to get into this framework because they want to get into everything. Uh, Most of our other Asian allies have signed up, but India basically calling us out and saying this is just not anything to it, certainly not anything that serves our economic benefit or security benefit. So thanks, but no thanks. You can go and, and have your conferences by yourself. Do you think this is a, a big deal? I think it's the end of a road. And what I mean by that is I think for a long time, Britain and the U.S. and the West has been able to say, please come to us. And there was this entire generation in India, Japan, Asia, and even sub-Saharan Africa where they'd probably say, oh, yes, well, the smart people want us to come and that's it. And I think what's happened is we've had enough Indians, Chinese and everybody else go through our Ivy League education system to know that these guys are a bunch of dweebs. You know what I'm saying? In other words, they're looking around and they're just not that impressed because they were at Harvard. They were at Yale. They were at Stanford. I mean, they were at whatever it is, school it was. And they see that these people aren't that impressive. I know that sounds really simple, but the point I'm getting to is I'm not going to credit Donald Trump with it. But what I'm saying is that a lot of times we've had a populist awareness and populism is sometimes misunderstood in my mind that people think it's always about some guy driving up and down the road with a pickup truck. No, populism, a lot of it is very smart people who are not in the political system, who do not stay around all night long watching C-SPAN or calling each other to say brilliant article in the Atlantic Monthly, just normal smart people are deciding that they are going to be involved in politics that affect them. They're no longer willing to take it from other people and just say, okay, we'll follow the, follow the ruffians here. Or I should say, and I mean by ruffians, you know, the intellectuals who push, push, you know, try to push us to push us through and push over people. The Indians are absolutely right. This is meaningless. I looked at this thing the other day and I was like, what is this? I mean, there's no deals. There's nothing there. And the problem is, is the U.S., especially the Biden administration, essentially they've got such a domestic constituency that's in their supporters, they can't do anything. Anytime they do something, they've got to check climate change, has to be checked. The climate people do not want any economic growth. They don't like it. When you talk to them and you get it down there, economic growth is bad. Everybody needs to be in a wagon, you know, pulled by a horse, and they're happy about that. And then after that, you've got the labor people. The labor people don't want anything to happen. So essentially, you're raising cost. You're raising regulations to keep certain people happy. So what happens? In other words, you're just, you've got nothing to offer, okay? And then you've got a protectionist wave in the U.S. that's unfortunately there and it's on both in both parties 
So you don't have anything to offer. In the old days, we could go to places and say, we'll give you access to the U.S. market. Then the West can say, we'll give you access to all our markets. The Indians and everybody else, like the Chinese and everybody going, well, you know, we've got access to the markets we need. We, we have what we, we can get. I mean, Taiwan, actually, that you bring it up is actually hilarious because Taiwan's looking to do a free trade agreement. And every time I look at a free trade agreement, I was just with a former head of AIT for lunch, and he made a great point. He said, they've got everything. What else do they need? What else does Taiwan have? They have all the most beneficial um, um, treatments of any, of any nation you know, we've given to them. And their only problem is basically they have a banking empire from the Ottoman Empire. They have a legal <laughs> system. They have a legal system that's finger in the wind. So you, it's worthless in that sense. So all their problems are, are theirs. I mean, I, I've worked on a Taiwan free trade agreement years and years ago, 2003. And I think again in 2011 or 12, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen because the Taiwanese don't want it to happen. But we don't have really anything to offer them. And they know that. That's the funniest thing about it. It's like, is there any constituency in Taiwan that has anything they want in the U.S. other than the DPP and the politicians who want to be able to attend a meeting? I have no idea. So, yes, long-winded way of saying there's nothing there for India to get. And Modi is a pretty serious guy in that sense. And he's like, look, unless there's something there, I'm not going for it. And I don't think there's a lot that India can get out of this either. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's right. A couple things absolutely true. You know, the, the idea of a free trade agreement with Taiwan was a brand new idea, I think, in the 1970s. Heritage came up with it, still dusts it off. I'm sure they still fundraise on it. But um, as oh, yeah. you point out, there have been times, multiple times where it's been brought up and just doesn't go anywhere because you're right. It doesn't really solve anything big for anyone. That's why I think rather than trying to have a big free trade agreement or some pseudo whatever IPEF would be, um, create a forum that gives politicians the cover and some impetus. So it's not forcing anything, but give cover to politicians if they want to undertake capitalist market reforms. So if the Taiwanese want to say, you know, what do you need for a bank account? Really, you just need to verify the owner's identity and have mechanisms in place to detect, you know, massive money laundering. That's all you need. So, you know, if you can walk into our branch with an ID or a passport and it's you, then yeah, you can have a bank account. Well, the reality is a lot different. Um, yeah. And that, you know, goes across the whole financial system in Taiwan, not just bank accounts, but um, insurance, credit ratings, why they can't use credit ratings in the US and we don't have an agreement there. That's uh, a little bit mystifying. And with India, it seems like we're at this point, kind of, you know, from 1991 until I don't know what the end point is, where you're right, America could sort of just set the agenda. Everyone saw us as the winner. Everyone wanted to get in, were willing to undertake uh, reforms or do whatever. And that era is just over. You see this with uh, India and others going their own way on sanctions against Russia, saying, again, we're not going to pretend that we can put a cap on Russian gas or oil. We're just going to buy it at you know what the market rate currently is, which is discount to other stuff. And, you know, we're going to have our own thing. I mean, one time, uh, you know, if somebody, you know, just, you know, just some, it was like, the you know, the emperor has no clothes. I remember I was this guy from Mex with this guy from Mexico, very bright young man. I, I wouldn't want to mention his name and, and hurt him. But the thing is, is that he was like, you know, if anybody wanted anything, he said, we should have a trade group with Central America. You know, that's our labor and that's some of our things. Central America, Mexico, the U.S. and Canada. 
He said, but then every time we get together with something like that, it looks like we could just trade among ourselves and be fine. <laughs> In other words, he said, <laughs> so it's not like we have a lot that, that we're looking for a lot of things. I mean, the American Trucking Association doesn't really care what happens in free trade agreements because, you know, they've got a they've got a shortage of drivers and magically they have a tremendous number of, um, you know, loads coming in and they can't handle everything already. So I don't know. I mean, I just think I really think there's a huge disconnect and I, I kind of like it. There's a huge disconnect in Washington, Brussels, London, Paris where they think they can get these people from developing countries in the room again and and you know and drive drive hard bargains and you know basically tell people you just have to be there but the days of Gloria Aurora the former president of the Philippines we were having dinner one time she's a very nice lady to talk to actually um although she wrote her she wrote her doctoral dissertation at uh or her master's thesis either I can't remember which one um, she wrote it on like the benefits of communism when she was at Georgetown. It's like she wants no one to see that thing ever. She actually <laughs> jokes about it. You know, she goes, I was young, too. And uh, but she said she said a lot of times, you know, you would get the Philippines, you'd get Indonesia, you'd get Thailand because all these people wanted to be part of these Western organizations. Everybody was kind of like Taiwan. They wanted to be a member. So. You could get them to join APEC. You could get them to do things. And then they would use those international agreements to drive domestic reforms. Well, now they're driving domestic reforms on their own because the, they know the ideas. They have the they know what's happening. I mean, you can go to almost any country in Southeast Asia and have a pretty good discussion about, you know, the benefits of Hayek or something like that. Now, they all don't put it in those terms, but we'll have to see. But I, I think really what amazes me, and I'm not trying to be partisan here or too partisan, but here we again, once again, our elites, the really smart people tell us something and they can't, it, it doesn't go. And the other thing too, I'll add one final point. I have to say that anytime you start talking climate change with people from India, China, or Southeast Asia, all they hear is you're restricting us. That's all they hear. They don't I mean, you know, they don't want they don't they don't hear anything else. And and they just hear people basically, oh, you know, you've got to restrict your client, your your gases, your, you know, no coal plants. And they're like, look, what are we supposed to do for power? So it's very, very it's it's very, very disheartening that this is the best the U.S. can come up with. And you're right. China just looks at it and says not a threat. Right. Right. Well, um, you know, I do wonder, too. Uh you mentioned the sun god worship, climate change, alarmism, the enthusiasm for that uh, that's infecting the West. Uh, and they're just not buying it in the Middle East. They're not buying it in India. Uh, even some other places will pay a teeny bit of lip service. You know, Modi might receive John yeah, California won't be buying it much longer either once they have all these blackouts, <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty soon. Let me tell you something. When the kids can't recharge their iPhones for their TikTok videos, you know, there could be riots in the street. You know, that's when they're going to get upset. You know, well, I was in grad school in California when the lights went out. I knew something was wrong. I was jogging on uh, on the beach in Santa Monica. It was a time of day that uh, there shouldn't have been a traffic jam. And there was one because the traffic lights were out. And that's what it took to elect a Republican in California. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it took a, a pretty serious crisis and a recall. So, um, you know, of all the bad things that have happened in California and the 
exodus of people um, that hasn't triggered political revolution. Maybe that will. I I just think like we're talking about this Indo-Pacific agreement, this is made by people who have no connection with the real world. Mm -hmm. And therefore, people who operate in the real world, i.e. the populist who have seen a, a route to electoral victory, thanks to, I hate to say it, Trump. You know, and the and the rhetoric and how he moves around and in, in, in the pop how he taught people to move around in the political circles, you know, they figured it out and they don't really there's no rewards for joining the Indo no one goes, Wow, we joined the Indo Pacific. I'm gonna vote for Bob because of that. You know, nobody nobody <laughs> they don't care. It doesn't mean anything. Right. The yeah. odd man out in the Pacific now is Japan in some ways, and they value their uh membership in the G7, you see them talk about that certainly more than APEC or the G20 or uh, other things. And okay, and they're the only Asian nation in the thing. Uh, the thing, incidentally, the G7 grew out of the 70s. That's why countries like Italy, uh, which aren't that important, but were, I guess, a little bit important at the time, you know, the idea was you get together capitalist countries that actually had resources that could get things done. And it came out of the collapse of Bretton Woods uh, and the economic chaos of the 70s. So um, anyway, but Japan today, uh, they are refusing to raise interest rates. They do have inflation. It's not as bad as us, but because rates are up here and finally in Europe, not in Japan, uh, you have the dollar trading above 140 yen to the dollar. It should be the norm. Yeah, yeah. It's a... it's not. Um, it may be short lived. I wish if there was if they would let you go to Japan without jumping through 18 hoops for COVID, even though COVID is widespread. Uh, I would go buy a bunch of yen right now, but uh, not going to happen, I guess. What do you think? Uh, do you think this will have a political uh, impact? Yes, it always does. I mean, sooner or later it will. The problem is the other guys don't have any solutions. Japan problems is declining demographics, aging population. Um, and with a weak yen and inability to really invest abroad in a competitive manner, um, in my mind, I mean, I think that's a big, big deal that, you know, basically, if you have a strong yen, you go abroad. If you have a weak yen, you don't go abroad as much or with as much force. Um, I'm sure people will find fault with that, but I think it's true. And I believe that basically Japan is is coming to this. It's it's really going to be the first demographic uh, country. China may be ahead of them a little bit because we just don't know the true numbers there. Um, but, you know, Japan's problem, Christian, is I don't know if they have a way out. I mean, what, what's their way out? It's declining every year. Every year there's a million less Japanese. Every year two million more Japanese move into, you know, once you hit 65, I'm sorry to tell you, you know, and that's hopefully a, close to a decade for me. But then once you hit 65, you know, you're not you're not going out and working anymore in all types of jobs. And so what's happening is that they've got a huge labor problem. They're bringing in fairness to them. They're doing they're being fairly aggressive about being bringing people in. But still, it's that's a high cost in what they're doing and how they bring people in. I don't I don't see a way out for them. I mean, I think they could end up being you know, basically the head office that has all their assets overseas and, you know, they manage them. But I, I'm, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing any ability. You know, we would talk about raising interest rates. All right. They raise interest rates. But that does that change the underlying economic story of Japan? And I don't think it does. I, I think they have real problems. 
Um, you know, somebody said to me one time, I thought it was really interesting. They said, oh, you know, we just need to get the tourists back to Kyoto. And the guy goes, why? We don't need them. We're already, with all the Japanese coming to Kyoto, we're, we've got full employment here. So what are we, what are we going to do if we have another million, two million Chinese a year come up? We're going to have to hire Chinese to bring up, to come in. You know, and then the Japanese are suffering something that I think we talked about last week with real estate. I, I think I think for the average person, when your real estate holdings really start declining, I think that really means a lot. In other words, I think people will put up with a lot if they're getting richer every couple of years. You know what I'm saying? But if you're seeing this whole negative equity thing, and I, I've seen it in Asia a couple of times, and the reaction is pretty fierce politically. And I think it's going to start being apparently Japan, Tokyo, excuse me, and the major areas are not yet suffering as bad as the outer areas. But, you know, you go 200 miles, 100 miles outside of Tokyo and, you know, they don't even put up for sale signs anymore. They just everybody just assumes it's for sale if somebody wants to buy it. Wow, that's that's depressing. No, I, was, I was talking to a guy who's in the agriculture up there and he said, look, he said, you know, there are hundreds around him he said of small medium farms that you know he said there's they're just going to be basically uh just growing weeds you know 20 years 15 years now because the farmers are all in their 50s and 60s and nobody's showing up to buy them he said unless they're all filipinos and chinese and indonesians which that's fine right yeah i remember abe demonstrating one time this is the former prime minister recently assassinated but when he was prime minister it was a machine it looked like a zamboni i don't know if it was planting the rice or cultivating the rice but of course rice being grown underwater tends to be very human labor intensive and this was the solution for uh you know a nation it's, of old parts it's very interesting i mean kobe beef for example and wagyu and you know the beefs up there I, I was reading a story about six seven months ago that essentially made people are worried it's not the same quality because they don't have the number of hands to put on the beef they don't have the number of people they need to raise the beef so they're changing their systems i don't know maybe they have little robots that like you know what i'm saying that go like that i haven't seen that yet you know that god knows they'll have it you know what i'm saying but, uh, All right. Well, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to uh, go be a tulip farmer in Hokkaido. I heard that's actually yeah. very, no, it's very it's it's it's, it's 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 true. But I do think I don't I don't see how we get out of it. It's kind of like Europe. You know, we were talking earlier. I mean, I just looked at my thing, my my iPhone, and I go, well, what's the euro doing today? It's one to one. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, honey, let's get on the plane. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? This is the chance. <laughs> and I and and I said to you earlier, I said, well, probably won't ever be this cheap again. And then I thought to myself. Do we really think Europe's going to pull themselves out of this? I don't think so. You know, how, how hard is it? And as long as America is the aircraft carrier, we're going to keep getting people are going to keep putting money in here. And with our system that's so unique, the federal system is just such a wonder. In other words, everybody's competing with everybody. And that's an amazing thing. I just I find I, it's hard to explain to people in other places that. Australia a little bit, you know, provinces are like, you know, a little bit different, but Canada a little bit too. But for the rest of the world, basically, you know, doesn't matter if you're in Shanghai or Shenzhen, it's the same policy you're dealing with for the most part. And the U.S. is different. If you pick Texas, if you pick Alabama, if you pick Florida, boy, it's a completely different experience than like Rhode Island. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
I lived in Rogues Island for three years. Interesting, interesting place. Um, let me throw you a curveball. We didn't discuss this before, but um, let's go, go across south and across the Taiwan Strait. This is uh, in abstract, we've discussed this before, which is defending Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've been one of the people who have assumed this is a big shift for the U.S., that we need to get away from cowboys and Indians and that fighting in the Pacific uh, with the geographies there and the fact that there is water uh, means that you invest in big systems more. Uh, ships, especially submarines, missiles, satellites, yeah. nuclear systems, um, in that having a big army and having a counterinsurgency uh, capability is less important. But just talking to a friend who pushed back a little and said, well, first of all, um, whether you're doing actual fighting or just trying to prepare and de therefore deter China from invading Taiwan, special forces in the infantry, but special forces is very important uh, to the, you know, creating at least the potential for guerrilla warfare. But more importantly, he said, is that you don't want to just throw away the capabilities you have in special forces broadly defined that, um, yeah, we have an infantry and it's very important and we garrison Europe and all of that, but that's very different. That's managing masses of people, many of whom will be in the military for two or four years and then get on with the career, young guys, age 18, something like that, that the real warriors are actually the people who are our Spartans, the people who, um, you know, are the, the sergeants and staff sergeants yeah, and yeah. who are in their high 20s, low 30s, who really, really mastered the art of being a soldier and of training others. Uh, are found in the army in special forces and that that is critically important to Asia. So I don't know, I'm just curious what you thought about that. Well, I'll tell you this, the funniest, the, my, my funny story for that is uh, I was in, there's a place called the diner and you know, you've been there probably, you know, they serve these really great American breakfast, you know, and, and the burgers are pretty good too. Um, so I always go down there on Saturdays and Sundays. That's my like morning, see when I'm in my bachelorhood there, I, I show up there for my morning um, French toast and that, you know, when I'm reading and sitting there and enjoying my third or fourth cup of coffee. And I was sitting there many months ago and across from me were these guys with a little bit of beard, the Carthoris hats, all these things sitting here. And, um, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I was sitting there and uh, I had a charger with me, a phone charger with me. And the guys are looking around. I said, you want to borrow my charger? No problem, guys. He, he was asking. He asked the waitress for a charger. She said, we don't have one. I said, I got one, guys. I'm just starting breakfast. I'm, I'm fully charged. And I, I, I said, oh, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. So, <laughs> There's the tell. No, There's the no, tell. No, Politely from America, millennial says to me, no, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. And I just look. I'm just looking at him. And, I, you know, you could pick these guys out a mile away. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, one of the guys said, he said, oh, are you here on business, sir? And I said, are you here on business, sir? I still remember that. And I said, oh, no, I kind of live here. I said, I go back and forth. And I'm from a, I'm a Virginian trapped in New Jersey. And we had a nice exchange. I didn't press him on anything like that. But there, there have been, quote, unquote, rumors really confirmed that, you know, anywhere between 40 and 60 Marines or Special Forces or Recon Rangers, I don't know what the hell they are. You know, they're over there training the Taiwanese. Here's the point I would make. Um, I think that's great. I think they're doing a good job training the Taiwanese. To me, if they can get a couple of thousand Taiwanese every couple of months ready and make them better, the problem is they don't stay in the military very long, but the reserves and things like that stay up. 
I think they're waking them up the time when he's up. I think these guys are very, very important. I also think they're what I would call low political impact. You could put a couple of hundred of these guys around there. You know what I'm saying? And they could train people. They could work with people. We forget we've probably got over a thousand technicians taking care of all that U.S. military equipment there. I know, I, I've met a bunch of guys. You know, they're down at the military bases. They're the retired Air Force guys who worked on F-16s, and then they go over there on a contract with whoever it is and maintain the F-16s. They teach them the electronics. They do everything. So we've got those contractors. That's a regular part of our setup. You bump into them in Saudi Arabia. You bump into them in Japan. They're around. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that really right now the the, the, the Taiwanese are not ready to uh, the Taiwanese are not ready to uh, really take that training on seriously. And another thing, there was a there was a, 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 a I would call it a propaganda picture, and it was like Taiwan ready to defend itself, and it showed the Taiwanese out on the rocks. Taiwan will defend itself against everything. Like there's two guys with rifles and there's two guys with nine millimeter pistols pointing their pistols on the rocks out into the <laughs> ocean. They're going like, "Why don't you send Barney Fife down there to stop a PLA invasion?" I mean, that's the mentality. That's the problem. They don't have war fighters. They have never been in a war. You know, there's nobody alive in Taiwan. You know, who who is not in a wheelchair? You know, or you know, eating whole food now? Who's been in a war? Right. And they haven't been there. Maybe Korea a little bit. Some of them, you might find some old guys from there. And, of course, they went to Vietnam on a regular basis. But those are few and far between. The real issue is, and the real thing that we have to work on with all of this, is we have to get the Taiwanese. I believe the Taiwanese will fight. I believe these special forces guys will show them how to, how to fight. I believe the next part of that and what worries the Chinese the thing about Ukraine that we often forget, it wasn't the Ukrainian military that rose up and has been given the Russians such a hard time. It's this guys who fought in Chechnya, guys who fought in Afghanistan. I mean, they've got a bunch of you know, 35, 45, 50-year-old soldiers out there who have combat experience and are willing to fight. But what they had to do was they had to bring them back out of civilian life to fight. And I think the problem with the Taiwanese is, is that we, I haven't seen that transition yet. There's a guy over there named Enoch Yu. I think he does a reasonable job. He's always talking about civil defense. He's talking about putting Band-Aids on people. That's great. What they need to do, I think Lindsey Graham said something like this, is basically we need to sell them 40,000 M16s, distribute them throughout the island, and let the Chinese know if you come ashore, there's going to be at least – one out of four of these guys who knows what he's doing. So you're going to be fighting 10,000 guerrilla soldiers, you know. And, I, and I, I, I believe you have to make yourself tougher than you want to be. I do not like the talk from the Biden administration and from any administration. Trump had some of it, too. We will resupply you. We will give you supplies. Mm. Taiwan's not Ukraine. It's not going to fall back into Poland and then strike out again. Once right. they take Taiwan, it's over, you know. So yeah, I, 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 a long I, way I, that would require the cooperation probably of the Filipinos to uh, to, to resupply and to do everything. So I, I myself, Kristen, I have real um, I have real heartache about, you know, I think all the places or pieces are moving in there. Um, I think the Chinese know that as well. The advantage, the, the thing that benefit that we have is I really do believe the Chinese military is probably on par with the Russian military, if not worse but with no fighting experience.
Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure what happened. Again, this AIT guy I bumped into, he said, people are a little bit amazed at all these intimidation exercises. It doesn't look like the Chinese can do combined arms still. They're up on multiple different frequencies. But more importantly, they're showing capabilities all the time that Americans, even the Canadians, when it show capabilities, you know, they want with the Americans to see what they could do fully. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I know it sounds odd, but I, I really I, I really am pessimistic um, that we can send all these special forces soldiers over there. I think we can do a great job training these people, but we have not seen the commitment from um, the Chai administration and other people to get things done. And I'm a little tired of hearing from the DPP people. Well, you know, we just can't get the military to go along. Sure, you can <laughs> do it. Yeah, just you know, just do it. What are they going to do? Rise up and get upset about this? Most of the people you're training, because again, I'm a firm believer in what Jack Keane said. Some people said Taiwan could put 1.2 million people in the field, and Jack Keane said to these guys, he said, "You don't want 1.2 million people in the field. They get in the way. If you can put 200, 250 thousand in the field who know what the hell they're doing, it's a small island. That makes a really difficult island to take." Yes, you know? and has I a mean, lot of mountains I, in the middle. It's sort of perfect. I mean, yeah, sense. I mean, I, I, as a guy said, you want to be Iwo Jima. You want to be Okinawa, you know? Do you really think that in today's world, I mean, MacArthur took Iwo Jima, they took Okinawa, and we've justified it a million different ways. Think of all the bomber pilots that made it, you know what I'm saying, back because they could land at Iwo Jima. You know, I know a lot of, I, I'm not a revisionist or anything like that, but we, we made a decision. At that time, it was the best decision we had. But look at the loss of life that we had there with massive superior firepower and a Marine Corps, for the most part, an army that really wanted to fight. I'm not sure the Chinese are going to look at something like that and say, hey, I want a piece of that. You know, I, yeah, I agree entirely. And actually, just one in defense of MacArthur, that was actually Nimitz. That was the Central Pacific campaign. MacArthur yeah. came to a halt in the Philippines, and it was uh, Nimitz and the Marines and the Navy team that wanted uh, Okinawa and oh, wanted Iwo. And yes, it was. It sort of raises the question that no one wanted, even today, historians don't really want to talk about is, could you not have just left those behind or enveloped them? I guess if you're planning the invasion of Japan, the argument was, well, the Philippines, yeah. as your hinterland is too far behind, you needed stuff. But those were essentially frontal yeah, I mean, assaults, especially you know, frontal yeah. assaults on entrenched positions, whereas MacArthur was very keen on preserving life and on just enveloping and leaving behind strongholds. No, I, I, you have to understand, I'm, I, my generation doesn't get to question the greatest generation and guys who are making <laughs> those types of calls. I'm just saying that what you want to do is really make the Chinese think to themselves, do you think you could win in Iwo Jima? Could you think you could win in Okinawa? And I, I do think, I do think the Taiwanese would be pretty fierce once the once it started i think there's a there's a character trait in the taiwanese that is very very tough you know yeah. and i think in all people you know because they know it's over they know what they know that basically if the chinese come ashore and they take it they're done so you know either you fight to the death or you know find that find that ticket on eva air for twenty five thousand dollars for a uh, economy class seat to la yeah hopefully it doesn't come to that no. Um, okay. Oh. Well, yeah. And as far as whether the Chinese would fight, I just always think of Donald Sutherland's character in the Dirty Dozen, where he's pretending to be a general, inspects the troops, and goes, "Very pretty, Colonel. Very pretty. But can they fight?" <laughs> I, 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 I have to say, I, I really wonder. There was a guy in the Seventh Fleet, pretty senior, who said one time after a few pops, 
He said, look, I think what they're going to do is they're going to come out of Ningbo. They're going to come out of these places in their fancy new ships and they're going to go out 12 miles and they're going to turn left or they're going to turn right and cruise up and down the shore because they're they're not going to want to have, you know, to face those cruise missiles that I think the U.S. will throw at them. In other words, because, you know, we always think that the Chinese, they're 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 they're. Do we think they're just going to come out? They'll probably start softening up. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, our SSGNs are sitting on the other side. There was a great line the other day. I, I can't remember who said it. There was a great line in the chat group I was on. And it was an ex-military guy. And he said, oh, great. They found out they can shoot. They shoot missiles over the islands when they shot them over Taiwan. He goes, I wonder if they figured out that we can shoot them back. You know, in other words, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, kidding. Well, then kidding. brings to mind Dr. Strange's love where the mad general is like, who can play at that game, soldier? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it's, they don't seem to think about that. It's an amazing thing. It's the one thing I will give our U.S. military all these years, and I hate, I mean, I like the term of playing cow. We have men who know what it's like to put other men in, in battle. You know what I'm saying? And they're very serious about it. And, you know, the men and women that we have on these ships and everything like this, I think they're pretty, I think once they get going, they're pretty fierce, you know, and th since we're sending all our current weaponry and ammunitions to Ukraine, we're basically going to have nothing but new stuff to shoot, you know, <laughs> you know like I saw the other day, we're sending 10,000 or 5,000 or 4,000, 155 shells. I just have this vision of this guy sitting in Kentucky going like, you want them? Sure. <laughs> I got to dig. What did they, 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 were, they were shipped back. They were returned once from Saigon. So. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, we we haven't moved these things in since you know 1983, but you know that's fine. We'll we'll give them to you. And you know what? That 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 actually they probably actually once they tune them up a little bit and send them over, they're probably arm them up and send them over. They're fine. But that means you know buy defense stocks. I still think defense stocks are a great buy. I think the two. Funniest things we're seeing now in the stock market are like basically the government's making everybody get the jab. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. Pfizer and everybody's up. And then, you know, and also they're, they're, they're up. And then the next thing is going to be that basically we've spent, think about it, but all the time all this is done, because you know, they're, somebody told me the other day that like when they say they're shipping $11 billion in goods, they're not marking it up. They're basically marking it down. You know, in other words, depreciate whatever they're doing. So we're probably clearing out. I mean, we're probably going to have to order another hundred billion dollars in munitions, which I, my understanding is other than some of the missile systems, we can produce very, very quickly. You know, mm -hmm. just put on an extra shift someplace down in Tennessee yeah. or up in Buffalo, up off outside of Buffalo, New York. And, you know, we're turning out, you know, five or six hundred shells a day or whatever we're turning out. So, I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that it's a good idea that we get to replenish our stocks because of Ukraine, but the simple fact of the matter is we are replenishing our stocks. And I think the Chinese are going to be looking out there at brand new weapon systems, improved weapon systems, everything we're going to be firing at them. Shells have different generations of shells. We're going to be firing a lot of interesting stuff at, over Taiwan, a lot of missiles that they will be facing brand new equipment and God knows how old some of their stuff is. You know what I'm saying? So right. we'll see. All right, my friend, uh, just uh, to, to wind up the episode here, my friend John Kostick down in Singapore informs me there's an interesting trend with Singapore prices so high that you actually have a small contingent. If you're able to work remotely and just have to sort of show your face maybe for uh, several days, 
once a month, uh, like do one one week in Singapore that you have a contingent of expats moving to Bali, actually, that it's cheaper to be there. You just jump on a plane to do your meetings, go back. It's not a big deal. And you're paying like a quarter of what you would for the same amount of space in Singapore. So the plane ticket doesn't eat your, your savings. Curious what you think of that. And also there is more news from Bali as Bloomberg reports today. This is a new thing called Bloomberg Pursuits Amenity Watch. Uh, talking about hotels, you manage hotels. You manage yeah. hotels in Asia and Canada, the U.S., I think. Um, here we go. In the lush mountains north of Abud in Bali, a banyan tree resort opened in June with 16 spacious bales. I think that's how that's pronounced. Or private villas that have no walls, no doors. Uh, there are room numbers, but no keys. Upon arrival, each visitor is invited to stroke a kol kol. I think I'm pronouncing that right. A vertical hanging wooden slot drum that's used in villages. Traditional means blah, 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 blah. Welcoming guests to their naked experience. Um, so, Mark, are people going to be starting to do business from Bali, which was sort of entirely closed for the pandemic? And are they going to be spending five star rates in uh, a bug infested jungle to stay in a room that has uh, no mosquito nets or air conditioning? I, I, I don't know what world people deal in. I mean, we had quiet quitting. Now we're going to have Bali quitting in Singapore. Like, just go live in Bali and do what you need to do and fly back in once a week or something like that. I don't know. I mean, look, um, every time I every time I think naked, I remember I bumped into a beach in France one time that was a nudist beach. You know what I'm saying? And it was mm. nothing but a bunch of fat guys like me praying that a hot looking <laughs> younger person would show up. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's it's basically it's an, it, it, it looks like a walrus field waiting for like a hot porpoise or something like that to show, you know, a hot looking seal to show up. But the thing is, is that I I I see these things and it sounds to me like a writer at Bloomberg said, hey, the PR person called me. I'm going to go out and have some fun with this. I can't believe even in Bloomberg, they believe that this is going to work a naked. I mean, it's, it's a naked camp. It's going to be it's going to basically be weird. Here's my belief about a lot of those onion tree places and the other stuff. Everybody, the expats who go there from south, from Singapore and other places, they just go there to get high. Because it's the place where you can, that's, that's what you can do. reference to that, yeah. You can go to Bali and get stoned as a goat. And, you know, and you won't get lashes, you know what I'm saying? So you can, you know, fly down to Bali, get stoned for a week, have a good time, sit around naked if you even know you're naked, get on a plane, fly back, and then you're, you know, you've, 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 you've accomplished it. I, I, am, I am a believer that one of the things is, in fact, I was talking to my daughter the other day, who's in hotel school, and she was saying, look, everything is experience-based. Everybody wants an experience. Everybody wants this. So, hey, why not? If Look, God bless Banyan Tree. If they can throw up a shack, okay. It looks, it looks like the fixtures are very nice, but yes. It's oh, I'm, still, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure it's very nice fixtures, but as far as I'm concerned, no walls and dropping it down. You know what I'm saying? That means no air conditioning, no, no central plant. Yeah. You know, I mean, God bless them. I bet they're charging like 400 bucks a oh, night, sure, too. I sure. guarantee it. I guarantee they've got all these like tech and, 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 you know, tech and finance guys who can't change a spark plug, you know, I'll guarantee they got all those guys going, oh, what a, what a great experience. You know, I'm communing with nature and everybody in Bali is just looking at them. All the Balinese are just looking at them going like, what a bunch of, I can't believe what we sell these people. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's quite, I loved that term quiet quitting. And that, that's what the story, what you were talking about earlier really intrigued me. 
And I, you know, you go to Bali and you go back, sure, you know, you can commute to work. And that's, I guess that's fine. I guess that works. You know, I knew guys, but that's not a new thing. I knew guys who used to live up in Southern China in really nice houses. They had really nice compounds and they liked it. They were Hong Kong guys. You know what I'm saying? They had their girlfriends up there. They had their restaurants and all they did was when they went across the border, they went to like welcome and they went to like, you know, the, the, you know, Oliver's, the nice stores, buy stuff and then drive back across the border to their house and live in these giant, these giant homes, you know what I'm saying? Up in Shenzhen. And then they'd show up in Hong Kong, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and then they'd stay in a hotel and then go back. But yeah. I, I I'll tell you, Kristen, I mean, what people will pay for now is just amazing. I will bet that most of the people that pay for that experience believe in the Indo-Pacific, you know, training, training agreement. <laughs> it, all, it all yeah. comes full circle. Yeah, I'm, 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 that's, 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 that's where, you know, that's where, that's what I'd love to do is like, today we're having the Indo-Pacific meeting and we'll be staying here with no air conditioning. You know? <laughs> And that's what the Indians, I, that's why I love the Indians with this, and this whole <laughs> the first thing we talked about. They're like, stop wasting my time. You know what I'm saying? This is such mm -hmm. a waste. And they're not even that interested in going to nice hotels anymore. I'm going to get in trouble, but the Filipinos and the Thais and the Indonesians, in the old days, they just wanted to go on a trip. Yeah, that's the whole UN General Assembly. I mean, the most busy people are... If you work in a hotel or you're a call girl, I mean, I hear they have to bring call girls up from Philly for that, uh, that New yeah, York you know, confab to the UN everywhere. That's like in Taiwan. I always get in trouble in Taiwan because when you, when you go to a few hotels, the Shangri-La, some of the other hotels, the Landis, where they put up these these delegations that still recognize, uh, they still recognize uh, Taiwan. Every time I see their flags, I travel a lot. I know a lot of flags. Every time I see the flags, I feel like I'm walking into like the convention for Star Wars. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, this is like whatever empire it was on the outskirts of the thing. You see the flags and it's like nine different colors. I mean, there's one flag. It's freaking hilarious. Excuse my language. I think it's one of the one of the uh, one of like the Marshall Islands or something like that. It's a hoot to look at that flag. It looks like. You know, your hipster neighbor down the street, what she hangs out, you know what I'm saying, with the peace flag right next to it. You know, it's 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 hilarious. I'm sure one day there'll be like the LGBT flag out there and I'll be I'll be like a buffoon and walk up and go, So, what nation's here today? You know? Test some hydrogen bombs of that nation back in the fifties. <laughs> you know, what happened? You know, but they but they but they do do it. But anyway, all right, well look, I'll let you go, okay? All right, well, that's it for this episode. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.